Coming up on Security Now, I'm filling in for Leo again, and Steve Gibson and I have got some great stuff to talk about. There's more NSA news. It seems like there's more every week. We've got some of that. Also, we'll find out what about iOS 7 is really frustrating, Steve. And it's not the fingerprint sensor. In fact, we've got a whole explanation of what's good and what's bad about fingerprint biometrics. All that and more coming up. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Bandwidth for security now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 423, recorded September 25th, 2013. Fingerprint Biometrics. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. And by OmniLert. OmniLert's mass notification platform allows you to instantly send text messages, emails, and more to your entire organization. For a two-week free trial and 20% off your first year of service, visit OmniLert.com twit and use the offer code SECURITYNOW. It's time for Security Now, the show that attempts to keep you informed about the safety hazards of the Internet and sometimes the wider world to help you stay safe online. I'm Tom Merritt, filling in for the vacationing Leo Laporte. He's gone for two more weeks, so I get to do this show one more time. I'm excited about that because I get to do the show with this guy, Steve Gibson, the man behind GRC.com, Shields Up, Spin Right, and so much more. Steve, it's a pleasure to do this show with you. Thanks for letting me co-host. Oh, likewise, Tom. It's it's great. We get along well. We've got uh, we've got some fingerprint biometrics to talk about today, amongst other news. Well, yeah, I you know as soon as the um, the news of the fingerprint reader came out, uh, our listeners will remember me saying, "Well, let's see how long it takes before the reader is spoofed." And I, I'm I'm finding myself reacting to the fact that people are saying it was hacked. I, I to mm. me. It was spoofed. It wasn't hacked. A, a hack would be something that that circumvented the need for it. But spoofing is, is I mean, that's the right term. It, you know, fake fingerprints were made. And, you know, and, and we talked a little bit about the technology, the fact that it was a capacitive technology as opposed to a, a, a photographic technology meant that inherently you would need a 3D finger and of course uh it didn't last a week so, uh, so i figured that'd be a, <laughs> i figured it'd be a great topic for today since it's obviously very topical it's in the news and i wanted to to also put it into perspective because um there because one of the groups that performed the hack said see nanny 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 we told you fingerprints are no good and but a different guy who did it says you know, the the topic of his posting was why, you know, how I hacked Apple's Touch ID and why I still think fingerprints are great. And so, and and both of these really 
the reason I think I, I want to share them mostly is they really take us into the technology that had to be developed in order to do this, which is also sort of interesting. And of course, we've got a whole bunch of news of the week. So a great podcast. No, it's a great. I'm I'm really interested in talking about this too because what these I, I use you can use hack in the sort of the broad sense of messing with stuff to to apply to it here. I yeah. know I know what you mean. Right. It's not actually changing the sensor or getting in there, but these these ways of going after it they show the limits of it. Nothing is 100% secure ever. So to me, it's what these do show is not that, oh, see, fingerprints are bad. It's that if you're going to use a fingerprint sensor, you should know that these are the limits to what it's going to be effective at and what it won't be. Exactly. What I want to do is I want to bring back some perspective. Uh, and in fact, even in this context, I think a week or two ago, I talked about, you know, front door keys that are also right. not, that are not unique, but they're in the physical world and they're good enough to do the job and and a fingerprint and the and what you have to go through to spoof it and the fact that it's a real world physical attack that involves proximity in that sense it's completely different than anything that you know can be done to us from china or russia you know purely electronically with a zero day sort of thing so it it does really put us in uh, I think in a different class of security. So, you know, I want to I want to just take a really good overview of of what this means in the context of security and convenience cuz really those are the uh two terms that apply. Yeah, watch out for those boxes of fingers being shipped over from from <laughs> other countries. Uh before we uh, get to the news, let's uh, take a quick break and thank our first sponsor for today's show, which is perfectly appropriate if you want to have an arsenal of different things to help keep you secure. One of them should be a VPN. VPN helps to keep your internet traffic from prying eyes so they can't see everything you do. Uh and plus, if you're using free Wi-Fi at a coffee shop or at a hotel, or even at a guest's house, you don't know who else is using that Wi-Fi. Maybe some guy's parked out on the street using it. Maybe you're in the airport, and there's tons of people don't use the free Wi-Fi that shows up. That's a that's a bug, by the way. But but you want to use the, the official airport Wi-Fi, but you don't know who else can sniff your traffic. So one of the ways to keep that secret is to use a VPN. That's what I do. I use ProXPN. It's a global VPN. Works with almost any internet connection. Creates a secure encrypted tunnel, 512-bit encryption tunnel through which all of your online data passes back and forth. And you can use it with pretty much any application, of course. You use browsers, emails, file sharing, instant messaging. ProXPN keeps everything you do away from that open internet and stops those those little tiny hacks, those little uh, the, those hacks that try to sniff your Facebook password. You don't want to mess with that. Use a VPN. You don't have to worry about it. And it works by OpenVPN or PPTP. You can choose. Uh, bypass internet filters, block websites. You can choose what server it is. So, so if there's geographical restrictions you're worried about, you can get around those. Works for Windows, works for Mac. Obviously, you can configure it for Linux because it's OpenVPN and PPTP. It works with iOS, works with Android. Uh, you can allow it to use your data plan or your public corporate Wi-Fi with complete and total privacy. There's a new ProXPN app, actually, for Android, too. Makes it easy. Go to the Google Play Store, get that Android app, and set, that supports OpenVPN. World-class customer support as well. Go to ProXPN.com slash twit for more information and to sign up. ProXPN premium accounts are normally $9.95 a month or $74.95 for an entire year. We've got a special offer, though. Use the code SN20 and receive 20% off for the lifetime of your account. That's less than 5 bucks a month 
on the yearly plan. If you're not satisfied, you can cancel within seven days for a full refund. So, you know, try it out. ProXPN.com slash twit. Put it through its paces and use that sign-up code SN20. We thank ProXPN for their support of security now. Okay, Steve, let's uh, get into some of the security news, uh, starting with, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah that, now, the, the NSA uh, is back again. We can't get away from it. but <laughs> NSA you know, and RSA, we should, we've got two different essays. Yes, we do. Uh, we, we shouldn't be away from it until it sort of dies down sure, of, of its own accord. Now, many people apparently misunderstood what I was saying in the last couple of weeks about this the so-called backdoored, uh, dual elliptic curve, uh, programmable, programmable random number generator or deterministic random bit generator, I think is the, what DR, whatever it was, uh, when I was saying that nobody would use it. I wasn't saying nobody has ever used it. I said you would, anyone who knew anything would be crazy to use it. So that was my point was that, you know, it was in this collection of four pseudo-random number generators that the NIST had standardized on, it was like, it was ridiculously bad. It was hundreds of times slower. It was it was questionable from even before the standard, the ink was dry on the standard. So it was, and, and it was sitting next to three others that were faster and clearly secure where from day one, this stepchild was just, you know, wrong. And then we find out that it's the default random number generator used by RSA's suite of security libraries. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of leaves yeah. you speechless, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, let me say that again. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's the whole RSA, thing. the RSA, the the arguably sort of premier commercial provider of security technology and software. The you know the the, the inventors of of standard factorial based public key encryption. Uh, the the designers of of all these technologies, they. In commercializing this, they created a suite of libraries. There's um, Crypto C, uh, um, uh, Micro Edition Suite, Crypto J, uh, Cert J, SSL J, Crypto C, Cert C, SSL C. You know all these packages. That they they're, there's there's something called the B Safe toolkits. They call them. And what we learned from a letter that RSA sent to their major clients and customers is that they needed to change the default pseudo-random number generator used in all of this for, I think it was like 07 or, or 2007 or 2008. I mean, for like many years because the default was this last orphan <laughs> child Random number generator. That's what the Be Safe toolkit suites used by default. You could, you could. They had other PRNGs in there, but if you didn't explicitly select and tell the package to use a different one, this is what you got. And it is, 
it is impossible to explain this. I mean, this is just the, the, the security industry was stunned. I mean, arguably, we should have known, but it was just it was you, you just, you know, RSA would be the last person you would expect to do this. RSA Unless, is, is, is synonymous. I mean, I know most of the audience does it. They're synonymous with encryption. In the yeah. episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that premiered yesterday, they throw out RSA in there as as sort of like, yeah, we're using RSA. Like, the guys. If, if, if Joss yeah. Whedon writes that in the script, that means that this is in, permeated into the consciousness of the culture, right? Okay, so Matthew Green, who we've spoken of recently, the Johns Hopkins cryptographer, he, he wrote... Uh, and I'll just quote the, the top of his posting. He said, in today's news of the weird, RSA, and he says in parens, a division of EMC, because they got bought by a bigger fish, has recommended that developers desist from using the, and he says in parentheses, allegedly, and then in quotes, backdoored. And, I, and that's the other thing, too, is that um, our listeners understand because we covered this in detail, what we know about this. And, you know, we don't know anything, but there's every reason to be as suspicious as we should be. And that's all the reason anyone needs never to use it. I mean, because it's not like it's the only choice. It's like the worst choice, not only, you know, in terms of performance. Oh, and in fact, in trying to defend it, the CTO of RSA said, well, you know, there are purposes for having slow algorithms. It's like, what? Like no, what? Really. Well, no, for example, wh when you want to strengthen a password, you run it through a hash many, many, many hundreds okay. or thousands okay. of times. But but that's slow hashing functions. Yeah, that's, that's not the same thing. Distinct, yes, from a slow random number generator. Normally, you you need those at very high speed in very high quantity. We were talking about how... Entropy gets drained from from operating systems that maintain entropy pools, and that so operating systems are thirsty for new entropy because the random number generator is is taking up the entropy in order to do a really good job. So this is just this is unbelievable. But anyway, so continuing what what Matt Green said, he said uh, for, uh, developers desist from using the allegedly backdoored in quotes. Dual EC DRBG random number generator, which happens to be the default in RSA's Be Safe cryptographic toolkits. And then Matt, Matt writes, Youch. Yeah. He says, In case you're missing the story here, dual EC DRBG, parens, which I wrote about yesterday, he says, is the random number generator voted most likely to be backdoored by the NSA. And, of course, he doesn't mean voted literally, but no vote was taken. But, you know, we all agree. He says the story here is that despite many valid concerns about this generator, RSA went ahead and made it the default generator used for all cryptography in its flagship cryptography library. The implications for RSA and RSA-based products are staggering, writes Matt. In the worst case, a modestly bad but by no means worse case, he says, the NSA may be able to intercept SSL-TLS connections, 
made by products implemented with BeSafe. So why <laughs> would... Oh, goodness. Yeah. So why would RSA pick dual EC as the default? You got me, he says. Not only is dual EC hilariously slow, which has real performance implications, it was shown to be a just plain bad random number generator all the way back in 2006. By 2007, when Shumau and Ferguson raised the possibility of a backdoor in the specification, no sensible cryptographer would go near the thing. And the killer is that RSA employs a number of highly distinguished cryptographers. It's unlikely that they'd all miss the news about dual EC. We can only speculate about the past. So, so, I mean... Can you make a stab at why? Well, NSA. I mean, it is, it is the, you know, again... We will never know. We don't, we don't actually positively know there's even a problem. But, but there's certainly bounds, there's grounds for concern. The magic numbers used in this particular elliptic curve, remember I said elliptic curves are fine, but specific ones, because there's an infinitude of them, specific ones are chosen for various reasons. So, so, so the researchers, uh, uh, Schumau and Ferguson, verified that it was possible to have a backdoor such that getting a few random numbers from this generator would allow you to get the entire future to essentially to capture its state. And once you have the whole state of a random number generator, because it is deterministic, you can simply project that state forward into the future. So, so, it's it's impossible to excuse this it, it no one would have chosen this someone did and and there's there's i mean there's like there's no better place to plant a trojan than in rsa's toolkit which is used pervasively as a building block, because no one wants to write all this complex crypto stuff themselves, it's used pervasively in commercial products as a building block for everything. So, so I mean, this is this is the nightmare scenario because, and we know how crucial random numbers are. That it's it's the basis for secrecy is that you choose a random number that which is un, unpredictable by your adversary. And then you encrypt it in order to so the other side can decrypt the random number. Then they have it. And then you both use that for the actual to run the cipher. So, so anyway, the, 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 the incredible good news. I mean, this is an, another example of the positive fallout that Edward Snowden created. None of this would be happening if he hadn't sacrificed his way of life. You mean no one would know about it? Correct. I'm you know, sorry. Yeah. None of yeah. none of the revelations would be occurring, and yeah. and the, the, if I mean, this has now been killed. This may have been the coup that the NSA has had, and it's dead. 
Well, it will be as soon as they root this out of all the products sure. that have it. Well, this this um, seems to be the smoking gun that goes along with the story that said NSA had broken encryption and everyone was saying, well, they can't have broken encryption. Bruce Schneier was saying, trust the math. This right. could be the explanation of it where they, did, they didn't have to have broken anything. They... They had a something that was already broken, essentially. There, there could very well be people back in Langley who are just just not happy today. Oh, because I'm sure. they're they're big the big feather that they had managed to insinuate out into the industry. And and I mean also, I mean, the the problem with this is that it is not just the NSA. There are other smart people in the world. And especially when you aim them at something and you give them a place to go dig, they can find answers. So if 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 other people, not the government, I mean, you could argue that the, the, that the U.S. government, the NSA, having this is bad enough. But this has always been the argument against allowing any kind of security vulnerability, even one that seems to be asymmetric in nature, where... Only if you if you had a secret, would it be vulnerable? The problem is those secrets cannot be kept. The fact that Edward Snowden happened demonstrates the NSA could not keep their own secrets. Right. So, and, so and the, what the NSA would like to say is, yes, but if Snowden kept his mouth shut like he should, this wouldn't be happening. But he didn't is a fact. And the fact is, if he didn't keep his mouth shut... So if he did keep his mouth shut, somebody else might not have kept their mouth shut, just proving the point that you can't keep the secret. And and the fact that there are other smart people implies that if we allow weak, known weak crypto with suspected backdoors to go into heavy use, then it may very well be that there are other people far from Langley, Virginia, who are also not happy. Because who's to say that that they haven't independently cracked this? And that's the danger. It's not just, I mean, it's if there is a crack and it requires keeping a secret. You know, the the, the huge breakthrough in crypt in our understanding of 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 how to secure privacy is that algorithms must be public. The idea that you had, you know, and, and even RSA is guilty of this. They had some, you know, what's RC6 may still be, but RC4 was for a long time. And then it kind of, it got loose from their control. The idea is that you want to have the algorithms be open and then, and but be secretly keyed. Here we have an algorithm that is inherently flawed because it's based on some keying material no one knows the provenance of. We don't know where it came from. It's just, oh, magic numbers. You know, trust us. And no, <laughs> we can't TNO. do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, go. No, I was just going to say, I think the, the lesson here, because I'm sure there are people in our audience even who say, well, you know what? I want the NSA to have an advantage. I, I, I'm not one of these people who is against them. And that, that's fine. I did probably disagree with you, but th- that's fine to be on that side of the argument. However, it's not necessarily as steve is saying about just the nsa you don't know who else has the ability or has had the ability for a long time now to take advantage and, of this same back door yeah and they're not going to tell you 
uh, you know, they don't want to disclose that. They don't want to disclose that. It's probably if if it exists, it is a super secretly guarded secret. And they're, you know, chortling around with their ability to to capture some random numbers and then know the future, uh, which is the which kills crypto. And even The New York Times now understands that backdoors are bad. I was I was impressed by this actually. I, the, I this meant something to me because it was the Sunday review section. It was the the it was it was put up in the paper by the New York Times editorial board. So not just one random crank. I mean, but this was this was their formal statement. They said in 2006, a federal agency, the National Institute of Standards and Technology (NIST) that we talked about, helped build an international encryption system to help countries and industries fend off computer hacking and theft. Unbeknown, unbeknown, well, that's what it says, unbeknown, Hmm. I guess I put a a stinst in, unbeknownst, unbeknown to the many users of the system, a different government arm, the National Security Agency, secretly inserted a backdoor into the system that allowed federal spies to crack open any data that was encoded using its technology. Now, again, there we don't know that. So this is dumbed down for, you know, the general population. Unfortunately, it's also a little overblown, which, but our listeners understand, suspicion is enough. And we've got plenty of suspicion that when there doesn't need to be any. So going on, it says, documents leaked by Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor, make clear that the agency has never met an encryption system that it has not tried to penetrate. Well, that's probably true. And it frequently tries to take the easy way out. Because modern cryptography can be so hard to break, even using the brute force of the agency's powerful supercomputers, the agency prefers to to collaborate with big software companies and cipher authors, getting hidden access built right into their systems. The New York Times, The Guardian, and ProPublica recently reported that the agency now has, meaning the NSA agency, now has access to the codes that protect commerce and banking systems, trade secrets, and medical records, and everyone's email and internet chat messages, including virtual private networks. In some, again, that's a little overstated, but okay. In some cases, the agency pressured companies to give it access. As the Now that we do know, As a Guardian reported earlier this year, Microsoft provided access to Hotmail, Outlook.com, SkyDrive, and Skype. According to some of the Snowden documents given to Der Spiegel, the NSA also has access to the encryption-protecting data on iPhones, Android, and BlackBerry phones. These backdoors and special access routes are a terrible idea. Another example of the intelligence community's overreach. Companies and individuals are increasingly putting their most confidential data on cloud storage services and need to rely on assurances their data will be secure. Knowing that encryption has been deliberately weakened will undermine confidence in these systems and interfere with commerce. The back doors also strip away the expectations of privacy that individuals, businesses, and governments have in ordinary communications. If backdoors are built into systems by the NSA, who is to say that other countries' spy agencies or hackers, pirates, and terrorists won't discover 
and exploit them. The and government we would say get probably a, already have, yeah. Oh yes. The government can get a warrant and break into the communications or data of any individual or company suspected of breaking the law, but crippling everyone's ability to use encryption is going too far. Just as the NSA has exceeded its boundaries in collecting everyone's phone records, rather than limiting its focus to actual suspects. Representative Rush, Rush Holt, Democrat of New Jersey, has introduced a bill that would, among other provisions, bar the government from requiring software makers to insert built-in ways to bypass encryption. It deserves full congressional support. In the meantime, several Internet companies, including Google and Facebook, are building encryption systems that will be much more difficult for the NSA to penetrate, forced to assure their customers that they are not a secret partner with the dark side of their own government. Wow. <laughs> Good you know, on them for, for, that for pressuring for that, Congress, yeah. Yes, yes. And the idea I love the idea that we could see some legislation that forbids the government for from asking for this because then those any companies approached are completely free to say first of all no and also to say hey guess what the NSA just asked us to do illegally so you know we this is a step forward you know yeah, um, absolutely yeah i i was pleased and impressed <laughs> i'm not i'm not sure how much i feel google and facebook are the the folks i want leading the charge on building new encryption standards i don't think it's bad to have them in there i i prefer distributed open source solutions to that. That's why this this next story both scares me and heartens me. Uh, what what did Linus Torvalds have to say about inserting backdoors? I know. I just got a big kick out of this. Uh, and this, of course, came out last week. Uh, he was, um, uh, well, anyway, so, 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 uh, I, I'm I'm stuck on on his name because I know he pronounces apparently Linus. So you can say it anyway. Linus. I say I Linus, which is probably totally sort of a wrong. compromise. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway so uh, Linus or Linus or Linus, <laughs> who created the open source Linux operating system 22 LT. years ago, of course we all know, took the keynote stage at the LinuxCon conference along with fellow kernel <laughs> developers to talk about the state of Linux kernel development. Throughout the hour-long session, which occurred on September 18th, the panel was peppered with a barrage of questions on a wide variety of topics, with the outspoken Torvalds providing all manner of colorful comments. Torvalds was also asked if he had ever been approached by the U.S. government to insert a backdoor into Linux. Torvalds responded, no, while nodding his head yes, as the <laughs> audience broke into spontaneous laughter. Classic. It's classic Torvalds. He's, he's hilarious, uh, if you've well, never actually heard him speak. And the problem is, I wouldn't have been laughing. Well, it's I not mean, funny. It's funny the way he delivered the answer. The actual answer correct. is no laughing matter. You're right about that. And it's funny, you know, have you tried saying no and nodding? It's amazingly it's hard. 
Yeah, it's like patting your head and rubbing your tummy at the same time. Yes. No. You have to think about it. Yeah, yeah, it requires a a lot of deliberate override of what's natural. Anyway, I love that. And here's another piece of information. So he says no while he's nodding. So, yikes. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's an elegant way to deliver a complex piece of information, which is usually in these cases, if you have been approached, the government then says you can't tell anybody we approached you. Of course. Either. Yes. You know? uh, this yeah. was brilliant. So, yeah. you know, hats off to him and further evidence of the pressure that that yeah. manufacturers of pervasive systems, even something like this. I mean, they much heralded open source you know, I mean, I don't know how he would do it if he chose to, but of course, you know, he never would. So, no, good. That's good. good. I hope. Changing I, the topic. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully, I we've, we've got one iOS 7 security thing to talk about when we get to fingerprints later on in the show, but there's other flaws. Whenever there's an iOS update, there's always going to be flaws that surface. With, and hopefully none of these have to do with the NSA. What are they? <laughs> so, okay, what... What intrigued me about these, they're, 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 I found three different problems that have been reported. But from the standpoint of being a developer and just sort of, you know, problems have a feel. You can, you know, it's one thing to have like an obscure buffer overrun in some library that was written 10 years ago that that if you, you know, if you dance in a full moon in the dark with, you know, touching your nose and send in a certain thing, this will happen. That's one thing. These feel different. These feel like they are characteristic of a system which is getting overly complicated and is beginning to show its age. And that's sort of sad. I mean, these are, these are mistakes that, that, are, that are a consequence of complexity. And as we know... Security and complexity are enemies of each other. Um, it is difficult for anything really complicated to be also be secure. And what, unfortunately, Apple has done is they have added feature on feature on feature on feature is that little, there, there are little pathways, little cracks through the system that they obviously didn't foresee. So the first one... <laughs> Is is just kind of a I uh, get a kick out of uh, that's that been reported by a number of different people. The Find My Phone feature, much heralded in iOS seven, can be disabled by putting the device into airplane mode. Okay, well that's not surprising because yeah, airplane right. mode, of course, shuts down all communications because otherwise we were told we're going to crash. Okay, so the problem is in iOS seven. This can be done when the phone is locked with a passcode, meaning not by its owner, but by a thief, as the voice-activated assistant Siri, which is available by default while while the phone is locked, can be verbally instructed to turn off or to put the phone into airplane mode. (laughs) <laughs> that's just one of those ones where they weren't they, they thought oh well putting in airplane mode you should be able to do that that's that's not a security flaw yeah. oh, wait, wait a minute yes it is and then the problem is siri is still 
accessible as we're as we will hear in the third one, which is another Siri accessibility problem. She's accessible while the phone's locked. Yeah. So you just so a thief first thing the thief does is have Siri put the phone in airplane mode for him, and now doesn't have to worry. Now he can you know attack the phone and not have to worry about find my phone being activated remotely. It can't be because you know it's disconnected. Wow. Now this one. <laughs> Apparently, there was a soldier who had a lot of time on his hands and he was bored. Maybe he was on guard duty. Uh, Jose Rodriguez in the Canary Islands. Somehow, worked his way through this little gem. Um, Anyone can exploit the bug by swiping up on the lock screen to access the phone's control center. We'll be coming back to the control center later because I have a peeve of my own about that, but I'm going to do this along with you. So you swipe up on the lock screen to access the phone's control center and then opening the alarm clock, holding the phone's sleep button brings up the option to power it off with a swipe. Instead, the intruder can tap cancel and double click the home button to enter the phone's multitasking screen. So far, so good. It's working. That offers access to its camera and stored photos, along with the ability to share those photos from the user's various accounts, essentially allowing anyone who grabs the phone to hijack the user's email, Twitter, or Flickr account. And then people who wrote about this said the far-reaching nature of this breach through the steps described above offer unfettered access to a user's photos and the sharing functions of those photos. That includes access to social media accounts and emails. And by selecting the option to send a photo by iMessage, it also allows complete access to the user's contacts and all information stored therein. So, I mean, this is a, just a classic mistake and then a wedge that that pries open access to other other parts that are needed in order for the, the first phase to function. I got into App- my app store, too. <laughs> Apple has reportedly acknowledged the mistake and pledged to rectify it in a later software update. Until this gap is patched, users can prevent this from happening to them by disabling Access to the control center on the lock screen. Go to settings, then control center, then swipe the option to access on lock screen so that it does not not display on the lock screen. So another little mistake. It's like, you know, oh, won't these features be nice? But they do kind of combine in a way that wasn't expected. Okay, and finally... Finally, this is, this is an interesting one for pre, pre-iPhone 5S devices, it's assumed, being upgraded to iOS 7. If you have an iPhone 5 or older and have updated your operating system to Apple's new iOS 7, you should be aware that the password or passcode required on your phone's lock screen, no longer prevents strangers from accessing your phone. No longer prevents them from doing it. So this this occurs after the upgrade. 
they can use Siri, the voice command software, to bypass the password screen and access your phone instead. Simply hold down the home button, even while the phone is locked, and wait for Siri to ask you what you want. (laughs) From there, we accessed Facebook, Twitter, text messages, email, and phone calls. Really? on our iPhone 5. Really, Apple? Really? We even got access to our contacts app. Access is limited. You can't see anything on the phone beyond the lock screen and the Siri interface. So you can't play Candy Crush, oh darn, for instance. (laughs) Secure. But, But you can do a lot of important basic phone stuff on someone else's phone. Email, calls, text, and social media are probably the majority of time spent in mobile phone use. You can stop Siri bypassing your password by reducing access to Siri in the settings. Go to Settings, General, Passcode Lock, enter the passcode, Allow Access When Locked, Siri, Switch From Green On to White Off. So this is an example of a default being in the wrong position. Exactly. Exactly. Now, they say, here's one theory. On our iPhone 5S, the new iPhone, access to the phone is through a fingerprint security device called Touch ID, which, of course, is the topic of this podcast, which utilizes the home button as the fingerprint detector. Only the person who owns the phone can open it. If you're running iOS 7 on an iPhone 5S, it would be impossible to unlock the phone by pressing the home button. The problem is that on earlier devices, pressing the home button brings up Siri, not the fingerprint detector. That would explain the non-obvious workaround inside the settings section. I think they should make Siri be able to recognize the owner's voice. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. It's like, eh, you don't sound like Jack. Right. Now, I I put this note in my show notes when it first popped onto my radar middle of last week. Uh, (laughs) This is funny. And and I I didn't know whether we would be talking about it saying not yet or yes. But for those who don't know... There is a, is a fun website, is touchidhackedyet.com. And, of course, it now offers the news, yes. And, in fact, what was really cool was that when it initially appeared, people began posting donations for, the, you know, pledging that they would offer the person who first, who first hacked Touch ID, and, again, I say spoofed, um, X amount of money. And I remember seeing the figure $16,000 at one point. I haven't added it up. I don't know where it is. There were some, even after it was it was shown to be spoofed, some $1,000 donations. So it's wow. like, okay, well, that helps to pay for the materials that were required. Yeah, no uh, kidding. Now, is touchidhackedyet.com says yes and provides some background information and a list of all the, of the, the, the nice sponsors who provided lots of money. So that's great. That's really funny. Yeah. So what's Apple saying about Touch ID? Right. Um, There is naturally, um, there there are 
there are various types of support pages. There's a page uh, that shows how to do it and how to use it. There's also a support page in their knowledge base that, that sort of helps to put it into context, uh, which is useful to share and provide some additional information. I'm sure we're going to be learning incrementally more about it as, as time goes on. They said to configure Touch ID, you must first set up a passcode. Touch ID is designed, and this is in crucial. This is crucial wording, and this did this did exist prior to the spoof. So this is Apple's pre-hack or spoof position, which you know is right. They said Touch ID is designed to minimize the input of your passcode, but your passcode will be needed for additional security validation, such as after restarting your iPhone 5S. When more than two days, 48 hours, have elapsed from the time you unlocked your, you last unlocked your iPhone 5S or to enter the passcode and fingerprint settings. So, you know, they understand that, that in situations where maybe asking Touch ID to provide more security than it should the phone will fall back to prompting you for your passcode. Then a Apple continues, since security is only as secure as its weakest point, you can choose to increase the security of a four-digit passcode by using a complex alphanumeric passcode. So here they're teaching us about switching to the full keyboard and, and using something long. They say, uh, skipping over that, you can also use Touch ID instead of entering your Apple ID password to purchase content from iTunes Store, App Store, and Bookstore. You will be asked to scan your fingerprint with each purchase. If Touch ID does not recognize your finger, you'll be asked to try again. After five failed attempts, and this comes up later uh, today, uh, you'll be given the option of entering your Apple ID passcode. In addition, you will need to enter your Apple ID passcode after restarting your iPhone 5S and enrolling or deleting fingers. So, you know, they they have they have backed it up with, you know, they're essentially requiring two-factor authentication in those instances where, you know, you maybe you have less so they're they're trying to suggest things that a bad guy might do or you do infrequently or for some reason you haven't apparently had access to your phone for some length of time. You know, they're, they're, they're using the metrics they can to say, ah, in this instance, we, we, you know, give us additional confirmation that, you know, you're still you. So that's certainly reasonable. Yeah, this and is then, the thing that made me positive about Touch ID when I first heard the announcement was that they weren't switching over to say, we're relying entirely now on your fingerprint for access to the phone, which would have been a horrible right, idea. Right. Now, where, where, what about what about where they store my fingerprint? That's getting yeah. a lot of attention, a lot of discussion. Yeah, and and we don't know enough. I mean, this is where Apple ID. I'm oh, sorry, Apple ID. A Apple is generally more secretive than I would like about security. Gen you know, Apple is not open to the degree that other companies are. So. They're not telling us yet. I expect over time, this is what I mean by, you know, we'll be learning more. On this, they, they, they end this page by talking about what they call the secure enclave. <laughs> so they have their own term. 
Wow. Uh, Touch ID, they say, does not store any images of your fingerprint. It stores only a mathematical representation of your fingerprint. It is not possible for your actual fingerprint image to be reverse engineered from this mathematical representation. That's all good. And this is what I conjectured a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about the topology of features. Um, iPhone 5S also includes a new advanced security architecture called the Secure Enclave within the A7 chip, which was developed to protect passcode and fingerprint data. Fingerprint data is encrypted and protected with a key available only to the secure enclave. Fingerprint data is used only by the secure enclave to verify that your fingerprint matches the enrolled fingerprint data. The secure enclave is walled off from the rest of A7 and as well as the rest of iOS. Therefore, your fingerprint data is never accessed by iOS or other apps, never stored on Apple servers, and never backed up to iCloud or anywhere else. Only Touch ID uses it, and it cannot be used to match against other fingerprint databases. So a couple things. It's because of where we're going to go with our next story. It's mm -hmm. interesting and key that it is not backed up to iCloud, they say. And I will say what they described is entirely possible from a, from a, from a pure architectural standpoint. It is certainly possible to create a, a essentially a um, an environment where you can send in that is you you have a write only ability to send in enroll fingerprint enrollment data and no ability to read it so it's write only for enrollment and similarly it is. It is submission only for a candidate to ask about matching. And what you get out is just go, no go. That is, it just says, yes, this matches sufficiently or no, it doesn't. So, so it's, it, I mean, this is all good news. They're not storing prints, so they're not in there anywhere. They're storing structural information, the so-called, I'm again, hypothesizing some topo topological representation of features which have been found. And then, it, and they're storing it in a, in a custom design, not just saying, I don't know, like not, not having a software in iOS that has set aside some chunk of, of EEPROM somewhere. This is, this is hardware on the chip designed for this, for, for the, for this data to live there such that you can only send fingerprint image data in. You can only say, learn this or compare this. And so this is all good news. Um, I think they've, they've done the right thing. And significant that, you know, it's not backed up. It, not, it cannot come out. It only goes in. So, Isn't there a, a networking security system like that where you can only send in on one channel? Uh, or, or one cable or one connection and out on a, is an entirely separate one. Yeah, in fact, we we we've, we've talked about that a couple times. That, yeah, uh, 
e- um, Ethernet itself, the actual physical wiring, is one twisted pair that goes in one direction, you know, transmitting, and a different twisted pair that goes in the other direction, receiving. And there are um, there are uh, systems, cables you can actually make. There, there are even little connector boxes that deliberately drop the other direction. So right. you, you electrically cannot send data in the other direction. And, and there are even fiber optic links where you've got a photodiode and a photoreceptor and a piece of plastic in between, and there just isn't any way for data to, to go. That's back. the one I remember you talking about. I think that's the one I'm thinking of right there, that fiber right. optic system. That's really right. cool. Geekanook yeah. says he's going to start making rainbow tables for fingerprints. Do you think that would get him anywhere? Rainbow tables. Uh, I don't think so. That Okay, so we don't know exactly. We, we don't yet have details on what they're looking at. There are sort of two levels of features in fingerprints. Um, the the so-called minutiae, and that's actually the term they use. The minutia mm-hmm. are are sort of the sub features, like um, broken ridges or um, uh, sort of uh, um, or um, uh, ridges that that merge, or um, uh, ridges that form a little disconnected island. Where so kind look, of the imperfections, re- huh? Yeah, they are now. The larger details are what we normally see if you just like, you know, looked at your fingerprint on a glass, you would see humps and you would see um, what, what's called a whirl is where the ridge goes out and kind of does a loop and then goes back the same direction it came from. So you have this ridge reversing course and going off the fingerprint back where it came from. You have other ones that just go up and then sort of come back down and continue going off in the same direction. And, and, then, and then you have some that are just not connected to the, to the edges of the fingerprint in any way, sort of at, at, the, at the top level. But, and we don't really know exactly, you know, what they're doing. But, you know, uh, the articles we'll be covering here toward the end of the podcast give us some sense for what was necessary in order to defeat it. Yeah. All right. Uh, our, our last uh, main story here in the news, when I read the headline, it, it kind of threw me. And then when you read the story, you start to realize, well, maybe I should have guessed this. Google knows nearly every Wi-Fi password in the world. Yep. Now, and this is well, what's interesting is this is even not news. Yeah. I mean, this is not startling, except in the context now of post Snowden era. Mm hmm. Um, as far back as in June of 2007, uh, a guy named Donovan Colbert, writing for Tech Republic, described stumbling across this fact on an uh, on a new Asus Triple um, uh, E PC transformer tablet. So back in June of 2011, he wrote the following: I purchased a new Asus EEE. PC transformer tablet last night after work. I brought it home, set it up to charge overnight, and went to bed. This morning, when I woke, I put it in my bag and brought it to the office with me. I set up my Google account on the device and then realized I had no network connection. 
So I pulled out my Virgin Mobile MiFi 2200 personal hotspot and turned it on. I searched around Honeycomb, which of course was, that was the version of Android, right? Back then on, on, the, on the tablet. Mm-hmm. Um, looking for the control panel to select the hotspot and enter its encryption key. To my surprise, I found that the the triple E pad had already found the Virgin hotspot and successfully attached to it. As I looked further into this puzzling situation, I noticed that not only was my Virgin hotspot discovered and attached, but a list of other hotspots were also listed on the triple E pads hotspot list. The only conclusion that one can draw from this is obvious. Google is storing not only a list of what hotspots you have ever visited, but any private encryption keys necessary to connect to those hotspots. Which does all make sense. Google keeps a profile for you to make it easy when you turn on a new Android device and load all your settings. Why wouldn't your Wi-Fi password be one of those settings? And that is going on to this day. Two years later, um, more than two years later, and and thus the genesis of the headline, Google knows nearly every Wi-Fi password in the world. They're saying with with the massive number of Android devices, which are backing themselves up to Google's cloud, and the default setting is... To, to back up the settings of the device, and that includes your list of known to that device, previous hotspots, and the encryption keys for them. Those are up there. And we also know that, um, that you, you can, if you attach a new device, it will automatically and, and synchronize to the Google Cloud it's automatically configured with that information. So what we now know is that Google has that stuff and Google has the ability to decrypt it. And the NSA has the ability to ask Google for that if they want it. Well, and and that's the key, right? Because you can also phrase this story, Google knows every email in the world because there's so many Gmail addresses that they probably know a large percentage of the email because they're either being sent to or sent from Gmail accounts. And you can make a similar argument about documents. It all pretty much hinges on client decryption, which is what happened when he he set up his PC transformer, he put in his password, how secure that is, and whether Google can get into your, your private profile and hand it over to somebody if somebody comes knocking with a subpoena or not in some cases. Well, actually, we, we do know that they can. We yeah. know that, that, that they're now boasting good physical, physical data center security and, and good, good encryption in the data center, but that they can remove it. I mean, they have access to our data. And, and it's, you know, many people have, te- have verified that through, through, you know, clever tests of, of, of changing their password before synchronizing, and then Google finds them and synchronizes. So, you know, it wasn't using their password, blah, blah, blah. So, so it, we understand that, the, that our, our link to Google is encrypted, but once there, we're now depending upon, you know, their encryption which they have the ability to to break um, being strong. 
you know, and, and of course, the integrity of all the employees who have access to, to right, our right, data. Of course. There are Snowdens on all sides of the, the equation. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So you have your own list of iOS 7 errata, uh, well, these things you, you think Apple should publish? Yeah, I, I like Sarah. I ordered my phone very late in the morning or wait, very late in the night, early in the morning, uh, actually, uh, you know, shortly after midnight. Uh, I'm just getting a black one, but it's, you know, they said they'd ship it sometime next week. So it's like I'm not in a I'm not desperate for it. But all my other iOS devices are switched over to seven. And one of the things that I do often uh, have always done is I'll uh, in the old days, pre seven, I'd lift the screen up and then slide to the left to get the control panel. And I would adjust the brightness because and I find I do it several times a day because I, the auto adjust is useless to me. It never seems to, you know, I, I thank them for trying, but they don't seem to know what I want. So I'm manually adjusting the screen. And when it, sometimes it's glaringly bright, so I'll bring it down. Uh, sometimes I'm out in the, in the sunlight or in a lighter setting and I, so I crank it all the way up. But it's something I'm doing all the time. So what I got to immediately recognize there was a problem because, of course, the new way is from any screen you drag up from the bottom and up comes the handy control panel. Unfortunately, to make it more visible, Apple dims the rest of the screen. And the panel itself is not very <laughs> bright. So, so in raising the control panel where the brightness setting is, they're dimming the screen so I can't see how bright the setting is I'm trying to make. <laughs> and I was I was reminded of you you're probably old enough Tom I hope to remember pre-remote control TVs. Oh yeah. I was the, the problem remote control. Was you you'd be sitting on the couch across the living room from the family's TV screen and it, the volume would be too low. So you'd get up and go over there to turn the volume up. But now you're at the at standing at the TV. And so of course it's louder. So you adjust the volume, then you sit down Oh, now it's too loud. So you get up again and turn it down. And so my point is, of course, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, of course. you know, where you're sitting, you can't, you can't adjust the volume. And when you get there, it's different. Similarly, you can't change the brightness on the iPad without it changing the brightness for you. So you can't tell what <laughs> brightness you're going to have once you're through changing the brightness. And you can't right, use uh, the hack that Bill Merritt used, which was to sell his son Tom to go turn change the volume without him getting up from the couch. There's no way to do that with your phone. Uh, exactly. Okay, a little a little louder, Tom. Oh, a little. Okay, right. That's just perfect. Yeah. Okay. Now the other the other thing I that occurred to me actually it has been a problem for me is, and I worried about the Twit Studio is the local bandwidth congestion on one's network of having multiple iOS devices in the house with the auto app update turned on. A couple days ago, I was unable to watch you guys live. It was it was pausing constantly, and I was getting a little spinning disc, and then it would try again, and then it would pause. And I thought, what is going on? Because, I mean, I'm the master of my domain. I know who, what's happening all the time here. And so I, I closed I closed the the... Um, the stream from you guys and looked over at my router and I've got, you know, a big iron Cisco industrial router. And normally the activity light flickers routinely because I have a, a, a live connection to GRC servers and there, and I have a protocol that I developed for, for synchronizing. Like, you know, when, when we hear yabba dabba do here, 
it's because I'm sending UDP packets querying for a status update and they come back through the multiple layers of NAT that way to, to, to get to me. So there's a little constant activity. I know what my network looks like. And this, my, the light was on hard solid. And I thought, what is going on? So I, you know, fired up my packet sniffer. I saw a huge amount of, of TCP traffic going to one IP. It was um, uh, in somewhere in Inglewood, Colorado, uh, hmm. the, net, the, the network where it terminated. Uh, I didn't have a clean lookup, a, a, a reverse. And I thought, you know, I'll just bet. It's my iPads because I have a couple of them and an iPhone here, all that are, you know, cruising. And sure enough, I shut them down. Network went back. And then I was able to listen to you guys without any trouble. And I then, because it just sort of annoyed me, turned off auto update on all of those. You go into the iTunes store setting over in the left-hand column and there's an an, op, an option for things that update, and you can turn off auto update. Um, I'm just going to switch back to first of all allowing them to accrue for a while, and then updating my master copy of iTunes on a Mac, and then synchronizing the pads, you know, to get the the most recent app. I just and so here was my concern was that you know it's one thing for me to have my little network disturbed by a couple iOS devices. I can't imagine the Twit Studio. With everyone there having, uh, you know, a phone and suddenly, you know, Elements, which is like a gig plus, decides it needs to update on all of them. Oh, yeah. So we'll, you know, I wanted, I'll, I'll mention this to Leo too, just to be aware that, you know, there it could really warp the bandwidth of of uh, the the Twit Studio. And, and and it could do that in any kind of large situation. I thought immediately of universities because I remember when yes. the iPhone first came out and it was always trolling for Wi-Fi access points. Some sysadmins at universities got upset about that. This is much worse than just looking, you know, pinging the access point. This is, like you yep. say, in some cases, large amounts of data getting downloaded. Yeah, but lots of different. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, most of the time, and we know how how rapidly these apps are being updated. They're constantly oh, yeah. being updated. And if you're like me and Sarah. And, you know, the app count has you've lost control of. Uh, there's just a lot happening. Okay. And so then what, my, what's my, your most hated UI change? This, yes. This is interesting. Pure gripe. It turns out that I use the app history all the time. So I would, again, I would lift up the screen using my a four-finger swipe. Mm-hmm. And there, in order of reverse chronological recency are the icons of all the apps I've used, however many could fit across the bottom. And then if I needed to go back further, I'd scroll to the right in order to get the next most old ones. And of course, I know the icons perfectly. I know what every one of them is. So, of course, what Apple has famously done is they've screwed that up completely. Now when you do that, you get big thumbnails of the last screen state of each of these and widely, and and then the icons are widely spaced out, so that you get like three, one in the middle and two on the edges, because the, the they've been forced apart by the size of the thumbnail that is hovering over them. It's just it's it's a catastrophe for me. I mean, it's like just disastrous. So <laughs> you I, know what, I, but- I hate it. 
What bothered me the most about it is a lot of times I'll just close all of those, right, as a way to track down a particular battery drainer usually. Uh, and now you've got to swipe the screen away, that little freeze frame of the screen state that you were talking about. Yes. That's so I, much slower than just having them all jiggle and then tap, 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 tap and get rid of them. Yep, yep. In fact, I'm glad that Sarah showed that on on the show where you you can, you while you're looking at that history view, you can drag the big thumbnail screen up and off the top and it, it goes away. So it's at least one way of, of closing apps and also, you know, c contracting your history again. But I'm, I mean, this is, I don't know how I'm going to get used to this because I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, being able to see whatever it was, like seven on an iPad. I mean, there were, there's like everything that I had been doing, I could just quickly jump back to. And yes, you can do the four finger swipe sideways to kind of go back in time. But it just was so easy to to quickly lift the screen and say, oh, that's the one I want. And bang, I was there. Yep. I've I've lost that now. It's just not as convenient. I use that a lot too. I haven't noticed it being a big problem because usually the one I want is close. It's not very far away. So I always had to swipe maybe a couple of times anyway. But, yeah, I know what you mean. On to the miscellany then? Yeah. Um, I've, I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, the TV series Orphan Black. Mm -hmm. um, Big I'm, fan. Uh, yes. And I'm, I'm through with the first. I, I'm halfway through. I'm through with the first of two discs because I, I got it on, on Blu-ray. And I, I just wanted to say that I'm stunned that that's one actress i mean I know. That, that's she I, is incredible isn't she that's yes that's what i come away feel i mean overall it's it's a nice series i mean it's like you know it's interesting i i like it um it's just like sort of a good pre procedural thriller um but for me what what stuns me is that that she isn't actually cloned i mean right. we assume I mean, it's like the parts she plays are phenomenally different from each other. Sometimes a little overboard to like to make them distinct, but mm -hmm. believable. But, you know, as I'm looking at these people, I'm, I'm having to remind myself this is actually the same person because she does just an amazing job. And I don't think it's just hair and makeup. I think it's it's, you know, she becomes these different people. So that's what to me, that's the most fascinating part of the, of the series, which is. It's just amazing. I remember watching that first episode and thinking, oh, okay, they're visually different, but how long can she really keep these characters separate? With and, and she really, you forget. You forget yes. while you're watching it that it's Tatiana Moslany, or however you say her name. I apologize, Tatiana, uh, is, is doing all of those parts. It's, it's, I agree. It's, she's incredible. So I also wanted, we've mentioned on the podcast several times, the TV series Homeland, which of which Leo and I are both huge fans. I'm like a hyper fan. I just, yeah. it was so good the last two seasons. I'm hoping they're able to keep it going, but it does. Are you happy when Claire Danes got her Emmy? Yes. Yes. I, I, I mean, she does a fabulous job also. I just, but I, and I just, everything about it, I, I really enjoy. Um, and I wanted to make a note that it returns to the air this coming Sunday for our listeners uh, who don't already have systems set up to capture it. Um, and then this is just completely random, but I just, this happened this morning when I was putting the show together and I just thought you have got to be kidding me. I I've always had my domains at Network Solutions. That's, you know, back in the day, they were the guys. They were, you know, they, they were 
where you got domain. I mean, we registered GRC.com at the same time that Microsoft registered Microsoft.com. I mean, I've had the domain that long. And so there wasn't all these alternatives. So, you know, and inertia has kept me there and it's a pain to move everything. And I've got a bunch of stuff there. Anyway, they've recently just been been spamming me with marketing propaganda. I mean, it's really getting to be annoying. And then this morning was just, I just looked at it. I thought, no, 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 no. A domain that I have, um, I was, I got a free registration for it in dot biz for one year, zero dollars. And I, I thought, first of all, I thought, what? You know, I mean, it's like I was confused. Was was my account hacked somehow? Did somebody register this for me? Or like, what? what? Then I realized what this is. It is pure bait and switch. It is, we're going to give you an existing domain in that in the .biz top level at no charge for a year, hoping you will use it because then you're stuck. Mm-hmm. And I just want to flip them the bird and just yeah. say, you know, you know, that is just slime. I, oh, oh. I, I moved all of my domains uh, with concierge service and you know, they're not a sponsor of this particular show. They are a sponsor on the network, but hover, you just call them up. I mean, tell them your domains. They do all the hard work for you. And then you do all the, the confirming and everything. So it's secure. But uh, that was nice. <sighs> Yeah, I just I just looked at this as like you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, that's annoying. That's super annoying. So, so you're you're working on a ton of stuff. Oh boy, I am. Um, so I just wanted to give our listeners a, a I finished the work on the the this first phase of the Spinrite R and D. Uh, we have full pre AHCI uh, support which was the PCI Ultra DMA controllers, which virtually everybody has in their machines for the last couple of years. Um, although they, the newer machines have their motherboard set to AHCI, which is the next generation controller. That's the next thing I'm going to support. Um, what's somewhat amazing is that we achieved 100% success on all controllers that anyone in the uh, news groups and we have hundreds of people have tested this on 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 hundreds of machines um, have in their possession. Many AHCI controllers turn out to be to do double duty. And so we ought we already work with those. Um, and many raid controllers were now able to penetrate what I call thin raid, where it's a raid feature, but it's actually just a bunch of disks and the software provides the raid functionality. And so it calls itself RAID in the system, but we run on all of its drives. There was hmm. only one true, apparently true RAID by High Point Systems where at this point we're unable to operate on it. We may be once we add AHCI support. Um, and we're getting stunning performance because, I'm, because I built my own extended real mode um, uh, operating facility essentially that I talked about once before. Um, and my own extended memory manager into this technology. So we're in real mode, running DOS, yet we have access to all of the machine's memory. We only need 32 megs, but that's 
vastly larger than the buffer we were using before. It's the largest buffer drives can use, but that's getting us on a level two fast recovery scan. We're seeing like 93 minutes per terabyte. So now multi-terabyte drives can can be scanned and, and, and data recovery performed on them in a couple hours. So that's really going to be very cool. And of course, as I have said, I committed a free upgrade to all of this for current 6.0 owners. Um, what I've, what I'm done well, at this point now, I've stopped work on that because I am frantically, feverishly, fervently working on documenting this identif- the, the identification authentication system that I've come up with. Uh, and I'm going to try to have that as our topic for next week, Tom. Great. Um, I'm, I, I think I probably can. And, uh, because uh, I, I know that I've piqued everyone's curiosity, to say the least. Uh, it's yes. holding up. I'm, I've got pages now of clear documentation and diagrams and, and you know, I've thought things through all the way, which is what I was wanting to do, but I wasn't letting myself really spend the time until I got spin right, this, this phase, this first phase nailed down. Um, uh, and I'm, it, it's looking good. So, uh, I think that'll be the big reveal uh, a week from now. So no Q&A next week? We'd push that off one? I'm willing to for this. Nice. I'm excited yeah. about this. I can't wait to hear about <laughs> it. And I'd love to do it with you, and then I get to do it with Leo again the next week. So that's Oh, yeah. There you go. Perfect. Everybody wins. All right. Well, uh, should we take a, a quick break and, and thank our other sponsor for today's show, OmniAlert? Uh, every organization needs an effective way to communicate during important situations. Seven and a half million people in over 15,000 organizations have already found that OmniAlert is their perfect solution to critical communications needs. Uh, OmniAlert's a cloud-based platform that enables managers to distribute simultaneous text messages or phone calls or emails or desktop alerts. All kinds of things like that. OmniAlert can even update web pages, can do social media, can do digital signage, countless other devices and services. And we're talking about critical systems, not just critical for your business, but critical for life, hospitals, fire departments. Other emergency services use OmniAlert to replace one-way pagers, delivering critical information and summoning first responders. When I was doing first response, you always had to have that pager on you. All the time. It's important to get people to know what's happening and where to go as soon as possible. Universities and colleges use OmniAlert to report campus crimes and notify students in case of emergency. K through 12 schools using it for automated attendance calls, uh, reporting lockdowns, things like snow days. Sports teams, community groups, they're using it to if they need to postpone an event or cancel maybe because of weather. Game gets rained out. Tell everybody right away. Everybody knows, okay, don't show up the field. We're going to reschedule that. Companies, both large and small, use it to notify employees about everything from server downtime to local traffic conditions. And the thing is, you can administer it from any desktop. You can administer it from a smartphone, for goodness sake, uh, from a tablet. No software new and small to install. Peace of mind with 2048, 2048-bit SSL EV. Import users easily. You can even let users opt in by text messages. You don't have to stress out. You don't have to get frustrated. You can plan scenarios ahead of time so that when the time comes, you deliver that information with one click. Uh, you can send messages to all users or set groups. They even invented the world's first campus emergency notification system, the leading brand for colleges and universities. Uh, we, we are using it now. We just got it set up here at Twit for emergencies. We used it the other day. Tony Wang sent a note out that the 101 had got shut down going north. 
We're able to like tell people, hey, you know, you might want to figure out an alternate route, alternate plans. Over 98% of OmniLure customers renew their service each year. Hassle-free customer support available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And here's the best part. Prices start as low as $2 a user per month on the basic plan. This is big level stuff that you could be using. Experience OmniLert's award-winning critical communication services for your organization. For a two-week risk-free trial and 20% off your first year of service, visit OmniLert, that's O-M-N-I-L-E-R-T.com, OmniLert.com slash twit, and use the offer code SECURITYNOW, all one word. And we thank OmniLert for their support. Of security now. Once again, onalert.com slash twit. Enter that's code security now to save 20%. All right, Steve, let's uh let's get into touch ID. Let's get into fingerprints. What first of all, what what there have been some cool hacks. What are these hacks that people have been doing? I love the Chaos Computer Club one, frankly. Yeah, uh, well, okay, they're basically one. That that is there is one way to do this. And and so I wanna I wanna share the the nanny nanny nanny. Uh, posting, uh, which I've edited a little bit just so that it reads better uh, okay. on the podcast. From uh, and and this was the original claim that was that was met with some skepticism until a good video was being made. There was some concern that the video wasn't really very good. Um, and it and and I'll make a couple comments about that whole notion too. But 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 this is sort of the. I want to show both sides to this coin. These are the guys who think fingerprints are an absolutely bad idea, period. And you'll certainly get that sense from them. So this is the official statement from the Chaos Computer Club who did, were the first people to spoof Apple's Touch ID. They said, the biometrics hacking team of the Chaos Computer Club, CCC, has successfully bypassed the biometric security of Apple's Touch ID using easy, we'll see about that, everyday means. A fingerprint of the phone user photographed from a glass surface was enough to create a fake finger that could unlock an iPhone 5S secured with Touch ID. This demonstrates, again, they say, that fingerprint biometrics is unsuitable as access control method and should be avoided. Apple had released the new iPhone with a fingerprint sensor that was supposedly much more secure than previous fingerprint technology. A lot of bogus speculation about the marvels of the new technology and how hard to defeat it supposedly is had dominated the international technology press for days. Okay, well, I didn't see that, but I also wasn't looking for it, but I'll take their word for it. I don't know about dominated, but certainly was talking about a lot. I'll I'll give them that. Yeah. Starbug, who performed the defeat, said, quote, In reality, Apple's sensor is just a higher resolution compared to the sensors so far. So we only needed to ramp up the resolution of our faking technology. As we have said now for more, actually it says for more many years, for many years, Fingerprints should not be used to secure anything. These are the anti-fingerprint people. You leave them everywhere. And it is far too easy to make fake fingers out of lifted prints. First, the finger... Okay, unquote. So back, back to the announcement. First, the fingerprint of the enrolled user is photographed 
with 2400 DPI resolution. The resulting image is then cleaned up, inverted, and laser printed with 1200 DPI onto transparent sheet with a thick toner setting. Finally, pink latex milk or white wood glue is smeared into the pattern created by the toner onto the transparent sheet. After it cures, the thin latex sheet is lifted from the sheet, breathed onto to make it a tiny bit moist, and then placed onto the sensor to unlock the phone. This process has been used with minor refinements and variations against the vast majority of fingerprint sensors on the market. We'll talk about all this in detail, what they were achieving with this in a second. But then they posted an update. The process described above proved to be somewhat unreliable as the depth of the ridges created by the toner was a little too shallow. Therefore, an alternative process based on the same principle was utilized and has been demonstrated in an extended video available. First, the residual fingerprint from the phone is either photographed or scanned with a flatbed scanner at 2400 DPI. Then the image is converted to black and white, inverted and mirrored. This image is then printed onto transparent sheet at 1200 DPI. To create the mold, the mask is then used to expose the fingerprint structure on photosensitive printed circuit board material. The printer circuit board material is then developed, etched, and cleaned. After this process, the mold is ready. A thin coat of graphite spray is applied to ensure an improved capacitive response. This also makes it easier to remove the fake fingerprint, sort of, so it for, for, forms mold release. Finally, a thin film of white wood glue is smeared into the mold. After the glue cures, the new fake fingerprint is ready for use. So Frank Rieger, spokesman for the CCC, who posted this, quoted himself saying, We hope that this finally puts to rest the illusions people have about fingerprint biometrics. It is plain stupid to use something that you cannot change and that you leave everywhere every day as a security token. The public should no longer be fooled by the biometrics industry with false security claims. Biometrics is fundamentally a technology designed for oppression and control, not for securing everyday device access. Interesting. And that way, continuing. Fingerprint has a perspective, right? Yeah. yeah. Fingerprint biometrics in passports has been introduced in many countries despite the fact that by this global rollout, no security gain can be shown. iPhone users should avoid protecting sensitive data with their precious biometric fingerprint, not only because it can be easily faked, as demonstrated by the CCC team, also you can easily be forced to unlock your phone against your will when being arrested, forcing you to give up your hopefully long passcode is much harder under most jurisdictions. 
That is the the, ver- the difference between something you have and something you know, and we'll, we'll be talking about that here at the end, than just casually swiping your phone over your handcuffed hands. Many, fin- many thanks go to High's security team, which provided the iPhone 5S for the hack quickly. More details on the hack will be reported here. So that's the that's the statement from the people who say this is all dumb. Now, Mark Rogers also defeated this, but he's a little more forthcoming about what it took. And he posted a, a blog posting titled, Why I Hacked Apple's Touch ID and Still Think It Is Awesome. So Mark wrote, by now the news is out. Touch ID was hacked. And of course, again, I say spoofed. This was a spoofing attack. Uh, you know, we have the word. That's the right word. In truth, none of us really expected otherwise. Fingerprint biometrics use a security credential that gets left behind everywhere you go on everything you touch. The fact that fingerprints can be lifted is not really up for debate. CSI technicians have been doing it for decades. The big question with Touch ID was whether or not Apple could implement a design that would resist attacks using lifted fingerprints or whether they would join the long line of manufacturers who had tried but failed to implement a completely secure solution. Does this mean Touch ID is flawed and that it should be avoided? The answer to that isn't as simple as you might think. Yes, Touch ID has flaws. And yes, it's possible to exploit those flaws and unlock an iPhone. But the reality is these flaws are not something that the average consumer should worry about. Why? Because exploiting them was anything but trivial. Hacking Touch ID relies upon a combination of skills, existing academic research, and the patience of a crime crime scene technician. First, you have to obtain a suitable print. A suitable print needs to be unsmudged and be a complete print of the correct finger that unlocks a phone. If you use your thumb to unlock it, the way Apple designed it, then you are looking for the finger which is least likely to leave a decent print on the iPhone. Try it yourself, he writes. Hold an iPhone in your hand and try the various positions that you would use the phone in. You will notice that the thumb doesn't often come into con- into full contact with with the phone, and when it does, it's usually in motion. This means they tend to be smudged. So in order to hack your phone, a thief would have to work out which finger is correct and lift a good clean print of the correct finger. Next, you have to, and he has in quotes, lift the print. Um, oh, and, and, and I, I made a little editorial comment here. The Chaos Computer Club article rather glibly glosses over this next part. Because Mark writes, this is the realm of CSI. You need to develop the print using one of several techniques involving the fumes from cyanoacrylate, superglue, commonly known, 
and a suitable fingerprint powder before carefully and patiently lifting the print using fingerprint tape. This is not easy, says Mark, who has done it. Even with a well-defined print, it is easy to smudge it. Or, sorry, it is easy to smudge the result. And you only get one shot at this. Lifting the print destroys the original. So now what? If you got this far, the chances are you have a slightly smudged 2D print stuck on a white card. Can you use this to unlock the phone? This used to work on some of the older optical readers, but not for many years now because they've gone capacitive, as we'll, and we'll talk about that in a second, and certainly not with this device, meaning the iPhone 5S. To crack this control, you will need to create an actual fake 3D fingerprint from this 2D image. Creating the fake fingerprint is arguably the hardest part and by no means easy. It is a lengthy process that takes several hours and uses over $1,000 worth of equipment, including a high-resolution camera and laser printer. First of all, you have to photograph the print, remembering to preserve scale, maintain adequate resolution, and ensure you don't skew or distort the print. All very good points, which CCC didn't mention. Next, you have to manually edit the print to clean up as much of the inevitable smudging as possible. Once complete, you have two options. He mentions the CCC method. Invert the print in software, print it, and onto a transparency film using a laser printer set to maximum toner density, then smear glue and, or, and glycerol on the ink side of the print and leave it to cure. Once dried, you have this thin layer of rubbery dried glue that serves as your real print. Okay, and, that, and then, but then he says that apparently he was the, the, the user of uh, um, the, the more elaborate approach. He says, I use a technique demonstrated by Tuso uh, uh, Tumo Mats, Matus, Matsumoto in his 2002 paper, quote, the impact of artificial gummy fingers on fingerprint systems. In this technique, you take the cleaned fingerprint image and without inverting it, print it on, print it to transparency film. Next, you take the transparency film and use it to expose some thick, and it goes back through this, the whole PC board routine, exactly as the, the CCC guys posted in their update. So Mark winds up saying, using fake fingerprints is a little tricky. I got the best results by sticking it to a slightly damp finger. My supposition is that this tactic improves contact by evening out any difference in electrical conductivity between this and the original finger. So what have we learned from all this? Practically, and practically, an attack is still a little bit in the realm, and he says, of a John Decar <laughs> novel. It uh. is certainly not, not something your average street thief would be able to do, and even then, they would have to get lucky. Don't forget, you only get five attempts before Touch ID rejects all fingerprints from then on, requiring a pin to unlock it. However, let's be clear. 
Touch ID is unlikely to withstand a targeted attack. A dedicated attacker with time and resources to observe his victim and collect the necessary data is probably not going to see Touch ID as much of a challenge. Luckily, this isn't a threat that many of us face. Touch ID, he concludes, is not a, quote, strong, unquote, security control. It is a convenient security control. Today, just over 50% of users have a pin on their smartphones at all. And the number one reason people give for not using the pin is that it's too inconvenient. Touch ID is strong enough to protect users from casual or opportunistic attackers, and it is substantially better than nothing. So I like that because I think that really puts this into context, which is what we need. Um, I would argue that, that having something that is very good but not perfect then allows you to use a much stronger um, passcode because you need to use it much less. You don't need to use it every time you turn your phone on, every time you, you know, unlock it to get access to it. That's the annoying thing. You only need to use it in those instances where the phone feels, eh, it's time for me to make sure this is the same person. And, we, and that's infrequent enough that you can afford that one to be much more burdensome. And that's going to be what most people who try to, to hack this and fail a couple of times or five times, and then it's game over um, with all the other caveats. So anyway, I, I, this is why I'm still a fan of this technology. I think in terms of real world use, if this moves from, from 50% unlocked iPhones to 100% some locked and frankly, very good locked, in most cases, then this is a huge step forward for Apple. I, I think a lot of people are getting caught up in the semantics of this, right? I mean, I actually think Mark Rogers is making it sound more complicated than it is. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, I think if, if someone really put their mind to it, they could probably do this. Not that any of us have cyan or cryolite just laying around the house. Uh, so it's, it, it's a fair point that this is not easy. I think the Chaos Computer Club tried to make it sound a lot easier than it was, too. But, but really, to me, that's not even the most important part. Is this easy? Is this hard? The most important part is the point you get to at the end, which is how often is it really going to be taken advantage of? How likely is it that some, like you say, like a casual thief is going to go to the trouble to do all of this? More likely, they, they just make you unlock it before, they, before you hand it over to them, right? Well, precisely. That's and yes, and I mean, one thing to remember, too, is that it, if there's a weakness, it's that, I mean, anybody who really wants security will use a really long passcode, period. I mean, that's what they will do. Or they'll use Touch ID until they start, you know, until they do a border crossing, because we've now we're seeing stories about, you know, devices being confiscated at international border crossings. And it's like, OK, so so you you turn off your fingerprint and you only use your super long passcode there. And then once you regain uh, control, you, you switch back. So it's worth it's worth planting in people's mind that that it is subject to that because at the border crossing, 
you can imagine a situation where where some authority says, put your finger on your phone. And if you hadn't turned it off, you could arguably be compelled to do that. Um, whereas something you know that's in your head is, you know, it's much more difficult for, for you to be compelled to disclose. And recent um, appellate court decisions have ruled that that it's against the law to force to compel someone to incriminate themselves under the Fifth Amendment of the, of the Constitution. Unless so, you're at the immigration checkpoint. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, yeah. So I. So I guess I. I. I think this is good news. I think the the key is for people to use it with an understanding of its limitations. Exactly. It's funny as, as you were talking. I was thinking the 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 scenario that I could imagine, although I don't think it likely. Is that you know, like the first for some reason some whiz kid need wants access to his parents' iPhone, which for some reason they don't give because uh-huh. he's a whiz kid. His parents are leaving fingerprints all over the place. You know, he's like, in, I know in, where the super glue is. I got some cyanocrylate. And you know, Dad left a nice, perfect thumbprint on the whiskey glass last night. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm gonna dust that and and lift it. I mean, maybe just for kicks to see if he can do it. Yeah. But I mean, I I really do. I mean, for example, make making sure that your that the 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 photo is square on, that it is one to one scale. That's obviously that's obviously critical. That it that it isn't that that, that there's no um, uh, uh, trapezoidal uh, distortion uh, in either way. I mean, it I could see that it it would take something to 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 make this work and. Because this is capacitive, because it actually senses the presence or absence of substance over the the sensor. That's what that means. As we were talking about it before. It's actually it's the three D ness of the ridges of your finger that this thing is sensing. In the same way that that a stud finder is able to find a wood stud uh, behind the wall, but what's happening is it's it puts out a capacitive field, an electrostatic field, and the so-called dielectric constant changes depending upon whether there's air or a solid there. Similarly, when you put your finger on the sensor, there, there, there are there is air where you've got ravines in between the ridges, and this sensor is able to sense that there that is it is a uh, a change in capacitance from from that to where the skin is in contact, just like a stud finder. Uh, at, uh, that that you know people have been using for decades. In that Chaos Computer Club video, if I if if I'm seeing it right, they just wrap the the uh, the fake fingerprint around a real finger, right? Yeah, that's all they that's, that's all they needed to do. You don't need to make a fake finger. No, you just wear it. Yeah, um, you, you you just end up with like a little snake skin sort of, yeah. you know, very thin thing. But it's got and and the whole idea the whole idea of using toner. Was that toner is three D? It is, you know, and and you can feel if you like rub your your fingers on a Xerox copy, you know, that that uses toner. You can feel that it is three D, um, and so that's what they need was that, that that they needed to create turn the image from a two dimensional to a raised event, and so the whole the whole concept of going to the PC board is there. You have the so a, a printed circuit board is a is a much thicker layer of copper than the toner is thick on paper. 
So they so they use the image to photo etch the copper away. So you end up with raised copper, which is more raised than toner. Then you 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 smudge the the um, the insulating material, the glue or or latex into that, and then when you peel that out, you've got a, an image of the of the fingerprint in relief, essentially, thanks to this little uh, printed circuit board. So, yeah, it can be defeated, but boy, uh, I, I think both locking it, you know, five times to lock, um, and it would be nice, frankly, if Apple turned that number down or if that were user controllable. If that were, I'd, yeah, exactly. I'd set that to one. And, you know, mm-hmm. if it proves to be reliable enough, if you don't get it the first time, sorry, enter your passcode. Yeah. And that way, if somebody says, we're going to force you, you now, you're at, you're, at, you're at the border. You don't have Fifth Amendment rights right now. Yes. Put your finger on that. You put the wrong finger on it. Yes. Oh, sorry. I messed up. I thought it was my right and, hand. And, it's my left hand. And, oh, my God. And, you know, I haven't had to use my passcode for so long. I forgot. I can't remember what the passcode is. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. I I, I think this is really important because people, and it's fun. I understand people are getting, you know, caught up into like, well, how difficult is this? And could I do it myself? And 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 is it possible that this is easier than than like trying to uh, attach a, a you know some kind of bot to the phone and and crack into the passcode? Those are those are all fair exercises. But why in the end, that's not what this mountains? is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why do people climb mountains? Because it's oh, totally. there. And, yeah, yeah, they want to look around from the top and like say, okay, here's here's a here's a high volume consumer fingerprint scanner let's find out you know what it takes to crack it and you know i'm glad they did i am too because now i know okay that's how much i could rely on that sensor i'm not gonna i'm not and you know what this informs my use of my phone too it also informs what i'm going to allow to be stored on that particular computer and what connections it's going to make because you know it has that level of security right it's all, it's all good stuff. Well, Steve, thank you and, for taking you know, us through. If it's easy to turn it off, then you, you could do that intelligently. You know, if, you're, if you understand that your phone has valuable data, while it's really in your control, you get the convenience of using your, your thumb or whatever finger you choose when it might have like, you know, in, for some reason you have less control over it, then you could just turn that off and just, just fall back to your really long passcode. And you mentioned it earlier in the show. Uh, how much more secure is this than a house key? Yes, exactly. Um, the, I mean, that's the other thing we forget is that a house key is actually not very secure. It's, it's, it, it exists in the physical world. You know, some guy has to be there at your door trying keys. But, it, it, you know, it's, it's like a fun experiment. Is you can, you can, it's often the case that somebody else's, one of somebody else's many keys will unlock your front door because they're, they're you know, the statistically there just aren't that many of them. So, so, you know, again, the idea is this probably has a, well, Apple is claiming a one in 50,000 false positive rate. Mm. So, um, you know, and they actually get their statistics a little bit wrong because they, they believe that that means that after 50,000 tries, you'll succeed once or something like that. I can't remember exactly what they said, but it's like, okay, it's not quite the way statistics works, Apple. But still, you know, the idea being it's very unlikely that that a stranger, a stranger's fingerprint is going to also unlock your phone. 
Um, and, you know, that does the job. It, just like it's very unlikely that a specific person's key is going to unlock your front door, but you get enough people together and the chances are uh, that someone's key will. And actually, you also have the, the problem with a birthday attack. If you got a bunch of people together, the chances are very good that a, someone, some, any pair of someone's front door and someone's keys could be unlocked. Similarly, if you got a whole bunch of people together with their phones and everybody tried everybody's phone, then the birthday attack statistics come into play and it's, yeah. it becomes, again, much more likely. But, you know, those are all sort of synthetic exercises. I just think it's, I, I can't wait to get mine and to play with it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, thank you, Steve. As always, fantastic show and uh, a good explanation. I'm really looking forward to, to next week. And and here I hope I hope you're able to pull that together for next week because I'm looking forward to hearing about this new authentication scheme. Doesn't involve fingers, does it? No, no fingers. Okay, I'll I'll keep my fingers to myself. <laughs> you can yeah. uh, you can find Steve's work at grc.com. Uh, you have a fingerprinting service, totally different kind of fingerprinting service that I noticed at yep. the top of the show allows you to detect yep. when your secure connections are being intercepted and monitored. Uh, but go check out Spinrite. I did that all pre-NSA, but there's been uh -huh. a surge in interest in it because, of course, suddenly people actually realize, oh, maybe there is, you know, some pressure being put on connections to be intercepted. So yeah, I've, yeah. I've noticed a resurgence of interest in that. Spin ride, of course, all kinds of great things. Uh, and you can find all of our show notes and, and things like that at twit.tv slash SN. Anything to tell folks about before we head out of here? I think everybody knows that I keep the low bandwidth versions of these, as Leo describes it, for the bandwidth impaired. Uh, Elaine likes to use it because she's got a satellite link to wherever she is out in the boonies somewhere. And so this it preserves her bandwidth. And, of course, she famously does uh, transcripts for all the podcasts, uh, which we have at grc.com slash security now. Check them out. Oh, Thanks, everybody. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm, I was just going to say that I'm really sure we're going to do, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm as sure as I could be that I'll be ready next week. Um, I'm, I'm going to show it to some close friends and uh, to have other eyes on it and to get some scrutiny. Maybe they, I mean, there's always a possibility that someone will see something that I just could not see because I was its own parent. Uh, so, you know, I might announce that it's busted already. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> Uh, we could do a Q&A, in which case you submit questions to grc.com slash feedback. Excellent. Bye. Thanks, everybody. And you'll tune in next week to find out. We'll see you then. Security now.